In a world. Mate, hold up. We said we're done with the serious intros. Who said? Well, we did. I don't remember that. Well, I said it, and you're me, so, you know. Well, I don't care. In a world. Uh, hey, I told you. We're keeping it light. You do it on your own, then. Well, technically, I already am, so. Anyway, fuck yeah. Pure wild flight. Get it down, ya. How good? Visit nzaerosports.com. I get to do the next one. Well, obviously you moron, we both do. I was 19, broke, unemployed, and sold my girlfriend's canopy for drug money. So, I thought I better sew her a new one. What a sentence, and what a story. This describes the humble yet outrageous beginnings of NZ Aerosports, the home of Icarus Canopies, in the words of our founder himself. From getting a paratrooper toy from his mom, Watching parachutes at the DZ as a six-year-old, jumping off the wharf with a parachute made from bedsheets, doing his first jump at 16, sewing his first canopy on a borrowed machine at 19, and starting to sell parachutes out of a garage in 1986, Paul Gyro Martin had an undying love for the sky. Our company started with one man with the wildest of spirits in a true blue sky dream, a renegade. In the time that Gyro created and ran the Icarus Canopies brand until he passed away in 2017, he pushed everything he had to its limits. We miss him and we always will. Gyro is the next generation of NZ Aerosports. It honors our founder, of course, because it was the name we all knew him by, but Gyro the rebrand also marks the start of a new chapter, our next jump. Gyro is the space between sound and silence, art and science, chaos and calm. Gyro is a state of epic tranquility that transcends understanding. That moment, in the door, in free fall, mid-swoop, where nothing but the present exists. A perfect balance of euphoria and thrill. Gyro captures our passion for flying and our commitment to designing break-the-fucking-rules canopies that deliver pilots pure, wild flight. Coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go. All right. Once again, the fucking pilot back in the can for another edition of Lunatic Fringe. Feels like we've done this before. I've got another uh, another interesting character to tell us some seriously cool stories and a hell of a background to the sport. Uh, tell me, who the fuck are you? What do you do? My name is Regan Tetler. Ah, oh, there's the voice. There it is. <laughs> what, what is it your friend says? That, uh, whenever I say my name, that's a moneymaker. So yeah. he, he always says... Hey, what's your name? And I said, Regan Tetlow. And he goes, cha-ching. Damn, Skippy. He makes Damn, this Skippy. noise. And there was a funny story with that, though. I did a job in Bahrain. And on the way out, um, we had to obviously present your passport. But then 
they make you um, say your name out. They ask what your name is. So mm. you've got to repeat your name. And this thing with Tux uh, was in my head. It was been going round and round. So the guy, the immigration guy says, and, and what's your name? I said, uh, my name's Regan Tetlow. And under my breath, I went, ching <laughs> <laughs> He was looking at me like, why did he just do that? Anyway, oh, that's too funny. Thanks for having me, Eddie. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, um, and I'll admit it right up front. So we've actually done a version of this before, yes. um, which for one reason or another technically got fucked up. Uh, so you are back once again, sitting in a toilet with me, being yeah. a true gentleman, so that we can tell a whole bunch of cool stories again. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so let's let's jump right in and start from the beginning. You jump out of airplanes. I do. Um, long before you were the voice of Scott Having. Yeah. Uh, in fact, something I realized this morning was I like to do little stats in my head and things. I've been a skydiver. Long. How do you say this? I've been a skydiver longer than I've been a non-skydiver. So I started jumping when I was twenty-three. So I had 23 years of my life as a non-skydiver. And then I started jumping in 1990. So now I've been jumping for 29 years. Wow. So you've been a jumper longer than you were a non-jumper. Yeah. That's pretty damn cool. It is. It's a strange little one, isn't it? That's very cool, though. I don't... Actually, I'm not sure I want to do that math. <laughs> I'm probably pretty close to that as well. When did you start? Uh, I started did my first jump in 95. So I'm a little bit behind you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I started jumping when I was 27. I'm not quite 50 yet. So right. I, got a, I got a few years left to go. But uh, I'm getting there. Close. So your first jump, you didn't start out the standard way. No, uh, 1990, back in the UK, a place called Tilstock in Shropshire, about an hour south of where I'm from, Staley Bridge in Manchester. Um, It was called the Sport Parachute Centre at the time. My first instructor was Colin Fitzmaurice, great guy, still a great friend now. And static line rounds, Dean. Wow. Static line rounds. I think that AFF was probably just starting off in the UK. Probably somebody will correct that. But I think late 80s, AFF was getting going in the States. And I think it was just starting in the UK, but it wasn't really, it didn't seem like an option for us. I think um, RAPS was available. The uh, Ram Air progression system was available. But majority of people that did a first-time jump, a one-off jump, Mm. did a static line round. Because it was for charity. Sure. You could raise money. It was a thing that people did if you needed to... uh, go and raise a bunch of cash, you could do these sponsored events, and one of them was jumping out of a plane. And that was your motivation? Yeah. yeah what, was, was, uh, what was it again? Well, there was, um, in my hometown, there was a girl, a young girl, she was in her early 20s, um, called Mandy Turner. And she had leukemia. And it was a big story, because she was a young, you know, a young, good-looking girl, and uh, all the town was local paper, and everybody was getting behind it and trying to raise funds uh, for the local hospital to get mm. a CAT scanner. Okay. So... I was working in the pub full time, and me and my friends were chatting away and said, "Let's go and do a parachute jump. Let's rate, let's get some sponsorship forms and go That's and true. do that." So we did. We rang up the place and got. I can remember the number one double zero double one six. No, I can't remember it. But it, <laughs> it was back in the day when you had to know phone numbers, right? You know? Yeah. So I got out of the yellow pages, and the reason I should know the number is because as I continued to jump, they did. Um, Wednesday afternoon skydiving as well. So I'd ring up at lunchtime on a Wednesday off the payphone in the pub. How's the weather? Are you jumping? Are you jumping? Are you jumping? Because <laughs> it was an hour away, so I should know the number. 9044 or something like that. So we got the forms, um, and we went, and we trained. We did the uh, first jump course um, out there at this, this this place in Shropshire, classroom. Um, I was wearing, remember, shell suits? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was wearing oh, yeah. this... It was kind of a lime green and yellow shell suit, I remember it correctly. And I turned up in my Ford Escort XR3i. Oh, there you go. Red, bright red, beautiful car. TRN 959X. 
Jeez, it's not a bad memory. Yeah. All right. So now it was you and a group that went out to do this first jump. It was me, Mark Davis, Kevin Law, and Alison Lowe. Never forget it. We did the training, and um, we're ready to go. It was too windy. Mm. So we had to go back the next day. This is UK, remember? Sure. This is not like in other places in the world where you turn up, you do your ground school, and you've qualified within four hours. Right, right. You know what I mean? We turned up. It was too windy. We went back the next day. It was too windy. So we went back the next week. Do you know how long it took? Mm. Five weeks. Fucking hell. <laughs> that's a long... That's I mean, to, to have that building up for that long, because yeah. once you've decided you're going to do it, yeah. uh, there's this this just build up. And I don't know about you, but I was pissed scared uh, <laughs> as it, when it became real. I'm like, oh shit, I now I've done it. And I've told everybody I'm going to do it. Yeah. So five weeks. Fucking hell. To be honest, Odin, just keep going back there. It became this kind of a social thing to do. Mm. The actual thoughts of jumping out of a plane kind of slipped out of our minds. Well, for me, it did anyway. It kind of, you know, we were just getting up early on a weekend morning, driving down to this beautiful place in the country, down in the leafy trees, out in the countryside, all these weird and wonderful people of all different uh, age groups and backgrounds were all there. And uh, it was a, a great big stimulus because I was working in a pub environment, all the same people all the time. So mm. to see all these wacky, weird, and wonderful kind of fringe of society people with sure. skydivers are. Sure. Got used to that, got used to that. And kind of the thought that we were going to jump out of a plane was slipping out of my mind a little bit until that moment. Well, I bet. When we got there I one bet. day and there was no wind and there was no rain and the sun was out and um, I heard on the tonoy and lift five will be Kevin Law, Alison Lowe, Mark Davis, Regan Tetlow. And I just stopped and went cold. I was like, uh, um... And I didn't know what to do, so I just went and hid in the bathroom. <laughs> I just went and hid in the closet, locked the door and sat there on the toilet thinking, what are we going to do? Why? It'll get windy. Or it will, this is not going to happen. Surely this is right. not going to happen. Right. The next thing you know, we're in these, uh, we're climbing into these blue overalls, these boiler suits. We're putting on these boots, lacing these boots up. Somebody passes me this, this kind of, this, this rig that I put on, this big blue rig. <laughs> the, the front mount reserve. And then the helmet, and we sat on the flight line holding the uh, static line, waiting to get onto the plane. Jesus. And they had this derelict old Ford Transit van with crates in the back, which took us down to the end of the runway, about 300 yards away. And we got into this van, and this guy who was driving the van, he had like two teeth. <laughs> and he was like one of these bald people with lots of hair. You know those type of bald people with lots yeah. of hair, one of them? Yeah. And I thought, this is just kind of crazy. And then we got to the plane, and it had... um. It had a milk crate for a seat inside, obviously no door. Juliet Victor, it was. Uh, I think it was Golf, Alpha, Tango, Juliet Victor, a uh, Piper Cherokee okay. 6. I've seen that aircraft recently. It's now owned by James Swallow. He uses it for transporting himself. Climbed into that, and uh, <laughs> off we went down this old World War Two runway, bouncing around, bouncing up, bouncing down again up and then down and then up and up and up and we started to climb and after about 20 minutes we were at uh, 300 feet and then <laughs> we carried on and on and on and then just I remember now just being in the plane and as it was banking like looking out at this big gaping door this gap of a piece of plane missing out into the sky and just trying to comprehend what I was seeing sure this kind of 3D image of like the world that you've not used to see before with no kind of window or television screen just this gap and we're just going round and round and I can't remember was I I think I was I might have been first and kind of got me to the 
had to shuffle my ass up to the edge of the door. And the exit was to have your feet outside sure. and be on the ledge. Yep. Right hand back. No, left hand back, right hand forward, head up, looking in at the instructor. And this guy, we'd, be, you know, we'd drilled it time and time again after five weeks. He'd drilled it and drilled it and drilled it. And the plane's going like, and he's staring at me all intense. It's, and he goes, go! And everything, there was a lot happened in that moment as he said, go. <laughs> there was a lot went on. <laughs> the first thing that happened was I was in my head saying, absolutely not. I'm not doing it. And the next thing you know, I've pushed off the plane and I'm off the plane. I can see the plane going away from me. And my first thoughts, this is all within a fraction of a second. Sure. The first thought was, you coward. <laughs> you bottled it. You didn't, you weren't going to do this and you didn't have the bollocks to say no. He shouted, go. And you did like some kind of uh, subservient fool. Oh. And there you are out of the plane. Why didn't you, why did you not, you know, be a man and stand up and say no? So, so I was ashamed and I'm under this parachute, this round parachute. And my first thought then was, wow, how completely quiet it was mm. being in this plane with all the noise and the engine and this shouting big beefy guy that's gone and suddenly it's quiet and it's just absolute serene it mm. was a real massive change i love that uh, um your first thought as you left the aircraft was to call yourself a pussy yeah that's usually that's a little bit backwards usually <laughs> yeah. people are patting them oh man i'm a badass no. i just jumped out of a plane absolutely but, not but you were a pussy because you didn't refuse yeah <laughs> That's jump number one. Jesus, God. <laughs> so, well, so now you find yourself under this round, and you're right. It's a, it's a very different experience, yeah. especially from the overload inside the aircraft, and you've just got – it's way too much fucking input yeah. on top of the stress and everything else and, and a fair amount of fear and all that. And, of course, now you're personally ashamed of yourself <laughs> because you jumped. Well, um, that kind of passed. Now I was kind of like starting to enjoy it a little sure. bit. I thought, this is actually quite cool. And, I could, and then – I saw some other parachutes. I was like, what the? Oh, no, it's the it's the guys. It's my old friends, of course. Sure. I wondered where they come from. I couldn't compute. What are they doing? Oh, yeah. Okay. They mm. they were from the same plane. And then, so I'm thinking about what we need to do. And right now with AFF and all the other coaching, everybody's got the radios and the helmet and the guys on the ground, which I've done as well. You talk people down and, uh, you know, speak to them nicely. And, uh, okay, Dean, it's uh, time to uh, do a left-hand turn. Show me that you can turn left. And off you go and turn right and stuff. And that's how, it, how calm it is now. We didn't quite have that. We, right. we, I think radios did exist in 1990. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. But we didn't have them. <laughs> but we had our instructor on the ground um, while he was briefing us on the ground. He had this big megaphone, which went over his shoulder with a mouth with a, a microphone piece. Mm. It was really loud. He would say, this is what you will hear. Car number one, you know, turn left. Really loud. You know, it's a loud megaphone. Sure. When you're stood next to him. When you're 2,000 feet away, <laughs> you know, 2,000 feet vertical and probably half a mile horizontal, what you hear is, I'm waiting to hear number one turn right or number two turn left. All I can hear is, and then he's, this guy seems to be getting more and more excited. And I can watch the the other people, my other friends, their parachutes are turning round. Remember, it's round parachutes. Right. So you've got these vents at the back. Um, so the air goes in, pushes out, pushes them forward at about five miles an hour in a no-win situation. Right. And so I'm watching people turning. Think, well, oh, I should start turning. So I started turning. Not really thinking why I should start turning. And um, and then I noticed that 
I was turning without putting input and I could feel myself turning. Obviously the wind was taking me and I started, mm. I could see the ground starting to speed up a little bit. So I'm obviously going with the wind, but then my training came back and I remember him saying, don't make any turns below 200 feet, which seems like a good idea and good training on the ground. Apart from the fact now we're not wearing altimeters, who knows what 200 feet is? Sure. And so then I'm just looking and watching and we're turning and turning. And I thought, well, it'll be okay. Feet and knees together, PLF. And the ground came. Wow, the ground came. It, yeah, just, it, did. it really came. <laughs> Luckily, it was a potato field. It had just been ploughed. And it was um, September, so it was nice and, you know, it was dry. And nice and soft. Boom! Into it I went. Ba-bam, bam, bam, bam. It was a bit like uh, Superman arriving in Kansas. Sure, yeah. sure. So I, that was okay, though. I just pushed myself down. Was, I felt brilliant. But unfortunately, Alison, she, I was watching her going away, away, away. And she hit, she hit a farm gate. And she... <sighs> Bust her ankle up terribly. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. On jump number one. Jump number one. Oh. So the ambulance comes and she's in the ambulance. So we jump in my XR3 and we've got a, a VHS recorder with us. Right. Because we're doing like a little behind the scenes thing. Big VHS recorder. Like the That's side. one of those ones where you had to throw the whole camera over your shoulder. Yeah. yeah. With a full tape in it, with a VFS tape in it. <laughs> right. I think we'd hired it from a, somewhere. I think we'd rented it or something. Sure. And uh, so then we're in the car driving behind the ambulance and my mate is filming me and I'm doing like a mock documentary. You drive us, you join us live in Shropshire as we <laughs> head to the hospital to find out the condition of Alison Lowe. Oh my God. <laughs> so that's that's kind of where the voice started to come from then. Maybe. Oh wow. That's very cool. Well, so unlike most people's first jumps, which usually start with copious amounts of alcohol, yeah. being shitty drunk and, and, a, and three of the 30 people that say they're going to do it actually show up and make a jump. You guys jumped to buy a, a fucking CT machine yeah. for somebody with leukemia. Yeah. That's a pretty noble first story. It was pretty, cool. pretty cool. I think we raised about 2,000 pounds or something like that. I'm telling you what. That's... Alison obviously didn't jump again because her <laughs> ankle was still bad. Um, Kevin, he, he came back the next week and did a second jump. And Mark, Mike Davis, the other guy, he did 200 eventually. He did wow. 200 jumps and then wow. he stopped jumping. He doesn't jump anymore. So. Well, now obviously you kept going, but uh, how was the progression for you? I mean, were you Slow. were you hooked? or? Yeah. Well, you know, it's slow in the UK. you got your weather to deal with. Yeah, I yeah. think after that second jump, uh, we next jumped. This is in September. We next jumped again in February. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, we weren't going every week, but, you know, we decided we wanted to do more. Went down, got retrained just after Christmas, and eventually we jumped in February. Man, that was cold. That's a lot of time for that fear to build back up. Yeah. My second jump was was dramatically scarier than my first one. For because sure. I, I think somewhere in the back of my mind, I just kept saying to myself, but you fucking survived it. Why? Why are you doing this again? Yeah. Fear for me was a was a big part of uh, skydiving to start out with and uh, um, took me a long time to overcome, and I was actually a pretty active jumper from the beginning. So, wow, that's that's a big gap. Yeah. Oh, fear for me as well. And I found out since that it's been very big for a lot of people. But I didn't know that. I was new to this. You know, I wasn't um, really um, used to kind of sporting environments. I wasn't really in many of the teams at school and stuff. So I wasn't used to kind of the psychology of it all. But I think I qualified on about 48 jumps. So that took what just over two years, I think. And um, we were down at the pub having the qualification drink with all the local jumpers who'd become my very, very good friends over sure, the time. Sure, But I was really struggling struggling with the fear. Uh, you know, it was a real battle in my mind to keep going there. Every time I got there, um, it, was, it was a great place to be. The environment, the people that I've talked about before, but man, the, the will to just not go was really strong. And when I qualified, 
I felt like a complete fraud. Mm. And I thought, I've got to tell these guys. I've got to tell them. I've got to come clean about this because I'm just probably going to kill myself because I'm pretending I'm a skydiver like they are, but I'm not. You know, I'm absolutely terrified. So we're cheersing the drinks and everybody's chunking the glasses. I said, guys, I've got something to, uh, I need to tell you or something. And everybody <laughs> went quiet and wide eyed, thinking what I was going to say. I said, look, you know, I've been coming down here now, whatever it is, a couple of years. And you know, I think you all are absolutely amazing. Some of the best friends I've ever met in my life. And I'm really loving the, the sensation of what this achievement is amazing, but I don't know if I can continue. They're like, why, 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 What's, what the hell's wrong? I said, I'm absolutely terrified. I'm terrified every time I come down here. I'm terrified every time I get in the plane. They were like, are you serious? I said, yeah, yeah. They said, but you know, that's how it's meant to be. I said, is it? They said, yeah, they asked everybody around the table, are you scared? Yeah, I'm scared. I've done 400 jumps. I've done 500. And then suddenly it kind of clicked in my mind that, it just all fell into place. Like this fear is actually a big part of it. You sure, know? sure. And I thought, and then I as I was starting to reason with it and reason with this fear, as we talked about a little bit before, I imagined this line in the sand mm. where your achievement is. And either you can do one more jump and continue. And so you're pushing your, your, your levels of achievement or you can stop there. You can stop and say, okay, the fear has got the most, the most of me. I've found my limit. I didn't like the thought of finding my limit. I didn't like the thought of saying, "Okay, that's all. That's that's as far as I can go." Sure. Yeah. No, well, it's it's to let that uh, that big if, whatever it may be, it wins. You know, it 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 is the one that dictated you're going to continue or not continue. It was the same thing for me. I told you before, I had a, a spot on the freeway where if I turned around on my way to the drop zone before that spot, I could go home head held high. Yeah. Uh, but if I passed that spot. Damn it, I had to go make at least one jump. And it was really weird. And it was the same thing. For years and years, I felt like a fraud. Yeah. Like, all right, yeah, oh, yeah, I jump out of airplanes, but I'm not a skydiver because these guys are- He's a skydiver. I mean, that smile looks sincere and mine is totally fake because I'm shitting my <laughs> pants right now. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, and then through conversations over all the years, you know, because- uh, if you'd have asked me, if somebody off the street asked me tomorrow, you know, does it does this scare you to feel like a skydiver? I jump out of airplanes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm I'm still I'm an eleven thousand jump rookie as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, which is kind of a nice thing. It's a good way of keeping yourself alive, isn't it? Yeah, man. You know, I mean, um, the the fear does a few things. First off, it it, it kicks in all the the training and it keeps you safe and keeps you alive, but it also highlights the accomplishment. Um, if it weren't for the fact that some of this shit has scared the living hell out of me, I wouldn't be so proud of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, if this stuff wasn't scary, everybody would be doing it. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of cool in that respect, I think. Yeah, back in the day, I, I can remember actually getting to the gates of the drop zone and turning around and driving all the way back home. <laughs> <laughs> Sleepless nights. But yeah, it, it is. It's, if it grabs you and that element of achievement, of accomplishment, I mean, that's really good. And, yeah. and the feeling after a day of jumping, it's... Uh, it was one of the best feelings in the world, especially were you on a small drop zone or where were you? Where did you learn? Started in Vegas, actually. Okay, so um, but it was a very small drop yeah. zone. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. that kind of small drop zone feeling—I don't know if many people um, what their progression has been, but for me, finishing off a, a Saturday when the, in the middle of the summer and there's a packing mat outside and somebody's got a guitar and you're doing your last pack job of the day and you're drinking a beer—it's just one of the best feelings in the world. Yeah, you know, I don't. I, I don't know what it was like to start on a big drop zone. So for somebody that started at uh, a Pel uh, Paris Valley or an Elsinore or something like that, that's such a huge drop zone. I don't know what that vibe would have been like, but I can't imagine that it would be quite as 
tightly knit as, you know, the drop zone that's got maybe a dozen regular jumpers. And you know every story from everybody, and it's it's a, um, a much more intimate setting, I think. Yeah. Uh, and it's pretty amazing, too. You know, uh, it really is. I remember, uh, just, you just reminded me of a story. I think it was in Eloy. And I was out there doing some stuff, and I, I had a friend who worked there. He was one of the packers. And he said, look, tonight, quite a few of the staff were going, we're having a barbecue. We're going to be around the fire pit, and we're going to be, uh, you know, having a few drinks or whatever and chatting away. You, you, you want to come along? You know, it's, it's like a local thing. I said, yeah, I'd love to. Where is it? So he explained where it was. It was down uh, down the RV somewhere, and, you know, you'll find it. So uh, I get there, and... Uh, pull up and I get out and I think I bought some brought some beers and there's, there's a fireplace there and everybody's sat around it on the rocks and so I get myself a seat and I start chatting away and I had a great night I had a fantastic night but I don't remember seeing my friend or anybody else I knew and the next day he said man where are you you know we were waiting for you I said I was I was there I had a fantastic time I was talking to that guy and it turned out I just kind of gate crashed some random non-skydiving <laughs> bunch of people who were having their own campfire and sat with them all night chatted away that's awesome the wrong fire <laughs> I totally forgot about that oh, brilliant yeah the, the the bonfire stuff has has always been well the community of skydiving and that's what everybody is has highlighted throughout the podcast is that the community yeah. um, if it wasn't what initially drew them there it's certainly what kept them there or at least kept it uh, interesting after everything else became I don't want to say normal, but just uh, uh, when you're jumping all the time and everything, it was that community that really grabbed you. Especially in the UK with, with the weather situation. You know, the, a lot of the be. time you wouldn't be even doing any parachute jumps. So you'd just be there for the community. Sure. And the games and the stuff you would do and the parties at the night and going down the local pub and the things that you would get up to. And the day, now, you want to hear about danger? I'll tell you about danger. Being in the UK when you're not skydiving, the oh, things you do. Man, man the, the, the majority of the injuries and the stupid shit that are done on weather holds in the States. So yeah. I can only imagine what it's got to be like oh, in the UK. Man. Well, you had told me before, too, uh, you worked in, did you own your own pub? Yeah, I, I worked. My first job was a graphic designer um, as I left school. And I was doing a bit of bar work on the side of that. Um, and then the guy that was working for, he wanted a full-time manager. He bought a second pub. Okay. So he got me in there to do that with him. And um, he asked if I would you know, be full-time working in that industry. So against the better judgment of my family, I quit as a graphic designer and went to work full-time in a pub, mm. which um, was a big disappointment to a lot of people. But it was brilliant. <laughs> I was getting loads of money and starting talking to people. And so... Well, and cheers to, cheers. Cheers, cheers to pubs. Cheers, man. So that was an excellent start to my, uh, that was my 20s, in my early 20s. And that's mm. when I started skydiving. So I was pretty fortunate that I was not going out, really. I was working seven days a week. And so I had disposable income, which I could use for uh, jumping out of planes with. Well, not too bad. Yeah. Not too bad. Well, you had told me a little bit about the pub life in the UK and coming from the States. Uh, my idea of uh, the bar scene in the States and, and uh, what I would consider a stereotypical English pub. Yeah. It's all painted by the movies. And in the movies, it's a lot like, have you seen the uh, the movie Hot Fuzz? Yes. All right. Uh, they're all just same seat, same bar. Yeah. Or um, what was it? Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Before the world gets destroyed, and yeah. the guy goes into the English pub, and yeah. they're all just sat there doing their thing. <laughs> hey, the world's about to end. And the guy's like, well, should we put paper bags over our heads? Is it gonna... He's like, yeah, if you want to, whatever. And they just carry on drinking their beer. Is that what it was like? Well, do you know what? I'll tell you, Dean, that's one of the things that made skydiving so attractive to me because it, I had some nice friends in the pub and some good customers, but it was the same people every day, sat in the same mm. seats, 
telling a lot of the same stories. And so when I found myself escaping to this wonderland, this extra life of these skydivers, for one, it was outdoor because mm. I wasn't getting much time outdoor. And it was in the back in the day in the in the uh, pubs in the UK, you could smoke inside. So mm. it was a very smoky atmosphere. So to be outside getting fresh air, that was brilliant. And to meet all these skydiver types was just a, a big, you know, a refreshing change. If you sure, like. sure. But there's a funny story about the pub. When I um, eventually left there in 99, I moved up to the uh, north of England, further north to Newcastle, where I eventually married a skydiver. That's a different story. <laughs> but um, after leaving the pub in 99, um, I didn't go back. I didn't go back and see anybody there until 11 years later. Wow. 11 years later, I found myself in the area and I thought, I'm going to call in. I'm going to call in and see everybody. Because my life had changed a lot, you know. I was, sure. I think I might have been a professional skydiver. Then I was jumping full time and uh, I thought, I'm going to see it. It'll be like the, the hero returns, you know. It'll be ticker tape and they'll be like, hey, cake. And So I walked in and um, it looked exactly the same. And the same people were sat at the bar. <laughs> but they all had the back to me, so they couldn't see me. So I thought, here we go. So... This one guy called John. He always wore a dark blue suit, silver hair, quite, uh, you know, quite a straight back, and uh, he liked to drink. Oh man, he liked to drink. But he was always sat in the same place. So I went up behind him, and I kind of just eased myself next to him at the bar, and he still not noticed. He was watching something, and um, I remember it's eleven years since I've seen him. So I just leaned in and uh, got close to him. I said, uh, "All right, John," and he just gave me half a look and went, "All right, Regan." <laughs> that was it. <laughs> As if, as if I'd just been to the bathroom or something. As if it was like just, you know, what a disappointment. It, you know, it, it, that, that, I mean, uh, bless them for if that's the life that they want. Good old, you know, good for John and his blue Absolutely, suit and, yeah. and, and at the pub. But yeah. uh, it always seemed to be the uh, um, the script of a great sitcom, not a life. Yeah. Uh, to me. Anyway. Well, so you start jumping in the UK, shit weather all the time. Uh-huh. You're getting in trouble on the ground. Obviously, you didn't do that forever. No. Uh, so where'd the transition come? Where'd you go from being terrified of jumping to to jumping full time? Well, I, I was going to a boogie in the Czech Republic. And um, we were meeting all... This way, I was still just... Uh, I think I had about maybe 400 jumps at the time. So I was just starting to get a bit more proficient. I, was, I, mean, mm. I had a bit more skill. So I was going to this boogie... Uh, first time, I'd, I think it's the first boogie I'd ever been to. And we were meeting everybody from the boogie at the airport. And um, I met this group of skydivers that were obviously skydivers who were wearing bum bags and boogie. Sure. You know, the kind of multicolored boogie bags. Oh, yeah, the, yeah. The trousers. So I got chatting with them and uh, we hooked up with them and it ended up doing a four-way team uh, with those three people. We put a team together, our first ever team. In fact, I ended up marrying one of them, one of them uh, my wife, wow. eventually. Um so that was good. That was our first ever team. And um, we went to the States and we got coached by Pete Allen and by uh, John McIver and Gary Smith in the end. And we, we actually got sponsored by Sunpath. Uh, this is a good story. While we were there, we remember we weren't a professional team. We sure. weren't a, a top level team. We were just a, uh, what it was called an intermediate team back in the day. Sure. And Gary Smith said, look, um, we're going to get you some competition experience. There's this Florida skydiving league happening at the weekend. So he spoke to um, the organizer of that and asked if we could take part. And it was Kurt, you know, the German Kurt, the, yeah, yeah. the NSL. And he said, uh, he came back, he said, yeah, he's going to let you take part in the, um, in the competition, but he's going to give you a handicap and he's giving you a 3.2 handicap. So we all nodded 
Um, so we knew that meant, yeah, no, sure. great, great, great. So we went and did our skydives. And then, so we were saying to Gary, what does it mean, this 3.2? He said, well, actually, whatever you score, they're going to multiply it by 3.2. So we were doing, for instance, say we went and did a 10-point skydive. Sure. Suddenly, we've got 32 points. Jesus. And we're up against the Golden Knights and Deland. Optic Nerve, I think it was at the time, PD Blue. And we, we went and won it. We won the competition. And at the medal ceremony, Derek Thomas was there. He'd had a few at the time. We could see him and he was looking at us because I knew Derek. And uh, they said, the winners, Angels. And we got the, <laughs> the certificate. And Derek looked over and said, give those guys rings. <laughs> so we were, I think, we, I think oh. we were the first non-senior team to receive rig sponsorship. Oh, my so God. Quite so a you, good got, story. you got sponsorship from SunPath because SunPath was hammered drunk and you had a hell of a handicap. Kind of. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, you had another... Uh, um, fun training story uh, from your beginnings, though, didn't you? You uh, nobody wanted to jump with you back oh, in the day. Oh man, yeah, yeah. Oh, it was terrible. <laughs> it was really embarrassing. We were going to. Um, in fact, that boogie I went to that I've just talked about wasn't my first boogie. I've been to one before in the same place. And then I had, I think I had maybe, I think I did my hundredth jump there and about ninety jumps when I went there or something. And I had no skills. I couldn't, you know, nobody. Uh, I couldn't get with the people in the sky and I found that people were saying we were going to be jumping all day together but then they were off doing four and five ways and six ways and I was on my own and I thought this is crap is this how it's going to be how am I going to get to a stage where I can skydive with other people and so I thought the only way to do it is to chuck a load of cash at it so Mm. I I did I I raided my piggy bank and went to um, went to Eloy nice and what I thought I thought was hiring uh, somebody from Airspeed to do one on one with me. That's what I paid for. Ended up with this lovely guy, this lovely guy, uh, an Irish guy. I can't remember his name. What was he called? It might be Mike or something. But I think he might have been an alternate or just a friend or the, I don't know, or somebody who cleaned the toilets or something. But he was certainly quite happy to jump with me every day, doing ten jumps a day for like sure. six days. I think we did. Oh, wow. Yeah. So and we had outside camera as well. Man, that was good. We did a lot of jumps. And I think that's what I needed, some consistency, you know? Sure, sure. And we did a hell of a lot of jumps, some really good skydives. And, uh, yeah, I came back. And then I bought a white jumpsuit. Oh, see, that's when you knew. I knew then. That's when you knew. <laughs> it was white for two jumps until I put it through a cow, a cow pat. Yeah. yeah. But I felt I felt the dog's bollocks to begin with when yeah. I had that white suit. You know? Oh, hell yeah. yeah. And the new parachute. I bought myself a brand new parachute. So the progression we have now, obviously, and, you know, we must say in all seriousness, progression of parachutes is very important. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of the biggest colors of the sport is people banging themselves in on a perfectly good uh, canopies. Pretty much the number one yeah. way, isn't it? Yeah. Well, we, we we did it slightly different. So I did my I did my round parachute jumps. So I qualified off rounds, and then I did a conversion to jump square parachutes. Right. And I think it was just like a little test, write something down, and then put on this. Uh, I think it was a Manta, and did a couple of jumps on that. And then I was then I think clear to uh, jump them. So I did I think another five jumps on these two forty Mantas, whatever they were. Sure. And I bought my first rig. I bought um I bought. A firelight, which was, um, it was a 170. Once I bought it from John McGuire. It was a 170 canopy, this uh, seven cell 170, in um, a chaser, which was like a racer copy, with a round reserve. <laughs> a and, chaser, yeah, yeah, with no no AAD, no Cypress or anything, you know. Man, and I, I was jumping that stuff over in Pura Brava, over the uh, canals. Can you imagine having a reserve ride being on a round? No. Oh, man. Anyway, so I jumped this stuff. So I'd gone from round parachutes, five jumps on these uh, 260s, and suddenly I was on my own 170. 
And so I crashed that a few times. I bet. And then I bought myself a Sabre 135, a brand new one. Ooh. Yeah. That's uh, quite the progression. Yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> did, did you pay any stiff prices on that one? Well, do you know, I kind of think I was just lucky. I wouldn't recommend it now to anybody, but I ended up doing over 2,000 jumps on that Sabre. And wow. it yeah. never let me down, never cut it away. You know, I'll tell you what, uh, people used to talk a lot of shit about the Sabre ones, but I had a shitload of jumps on Sabre ones, and I was super, super slow on my progression with uh, uh, canopies because I started out as a wind tunnel instructor in Vegas. Did you? So, yeah, yeah. So the, the free fall portion of it didn't... It didn't throw me any big loops. You know, I was learning pretty quick, at least belly flying stuff. Yeah, right. um, and I started shooting video right away, but the canopy stuff uh, took a while. Uh, so I had, a, I think my first canopy I owned was a, a F-111 PD-190. Right. Um, and then I think I went to a, a Sabre 1, 170, then okay. a 150, then yeah. a 135. And then I grew big balls and bought a Stiletto 130. Oof. Right? Yeah. And that was back when you had to prove you had 500 jumps in order to buy a Stiletto. Right. And I put uh, probably a good thousand jumps on a Stiletto um, before I downsized from that. And by the time I finally ended up on a, a Velocity, I had thousands of jumps. You know, yeah. I, I took it really, really slow yeah. uh, when it came to canopies. But I was also coming up in the time when people were frapping in left and right. This is when they were still toggle whipping stilettos and people were pounding into the ground. And if you read the the uh, fatality reports in skydiving, everybody was dying under a perfectly yeah. good canopy. Did you see that uh, video on Facebook today? Some guy in Brazil, an off-landing. Hit the building? Yeah. Oh, Jesus God. Wow. I, and I didn't have the sound on, and it was written in the, uh, Portuguese, so yeah. I didn't know what it was about. I'm just watching this video, and I'm like, oh, this must be a demo. Yeah. He's going to go for that field. I'm thinking, land there, land there, yeah. land there, land yeah. there. I'm like, it must be, he's landing in this field. Oh, wait, that's not a field. Oh, he must be going for that field. Oh, that's not a field. Oh, fuck, he's going to hit. Man, he went, oh, Jesus, how he got away with that. Oh, yeah, as he flares into the side of a building. Yeah, he got lucky with that one. Canopy Holy courses, shit. people, get yourself on a, if you've not been on a canopy course, get yourself on a yeah, canopy course. Yeah, do it. Do it, absolutely. So, jumping, you you, you you fall in love with jumping. How about instructing? Yeah, well, um, the jumping was, I got my uh, rating for uh, free fall instruction for giving people their, uh, their, their um, what we call it, FS1 back in the day, the formation skydiving thing in the UK, FS coach. But I, I went into the four-way, that's what we were doing. We were doing a team hmm. for, I think we... Had a team for about um, five years. In fact, I'm I'm a current reigning national eight way champion. No shit. <laughs> this is a good story. I, um, in fact, I was just down in Bedford uh, in the UK at their uh, World Challenge. I was presenting that, and I was chatting to one of the lads from uh, one of the northwest place called Cark, uh, one of the drop zones in the UK, and he was saying, oh, hi, champ, how's it going? And I was like, what, what do you mean, champ, champ? What you he said, yeah, we're, we're um, me and you and the rest of the guys, we're Scottish national eight-way champions. <laughs> I said, are we? He said, yeah, because they used to have their own uh, Scottish championships, right. and they don't do it anymore. Now, it, it doesn't exist, and so we would just happen to be at the last one that they ever did. We put two four-way four teams together. I think we scored seven points in total or something over all the rounds, and we, I think there was only two teams. So we won, and so for the last, I don't know, 20 years, is it, we've been national champions of Scotland. Hooray! you got to love that. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so if anybody wants to try and reinstate the Scottish national championships, you can take it away from us. you got some high marks to hit, though. Uh-huh. So four-way was a thing, and then that kind of ran its course, and um, I got divorced, and you know, I moved into my own place, and I was doing some jumps 
with a bunch of people from the university up there in Newcastle. And they just happened to be having a, a trip down to Empire Brava in Spain. Uh, I think about 30 of them going, there was. And they asked if I would come along. They said, we you come and do some one-on-one with us? And Because uh, they knew I was familiar with the drop zone. Mm. So, yeah, I said, I'll go down with him. And um, it, it just I think it was just the right place at the right time. The drop zone then, it was in 2003, 2003, four. They were looking for somebody as a full-time role to do some... Many different things, really. Load organizing, lower experience stuff, little five, six ways, seven ways, eight ways. Just getting the, uh, the solo jumpers all together, keeping them safe. Sure. Uh, making sure there was a reference on the drop zone, like a front of house concierge type sure, role yeah, as well. Yeah. You know? Basically, just making sure these people were spending all the money in their pocket. So sure. when they rock up, instead of doing two or three jumps, they would do five or six jumps. And instead of packing for themselves, they would get packing tickets. And they offered me that job. Wow. They offered me the job there. Um, and... I said, oh, I don't know, eh? Because I was, I was late, mid, no, mid thirties. I think I was thirty-four at the time, and I'd just started a new job in recruitment in Newcastle, where I was living, and I'd just got my own apartment. It was a whole new life, and the job was going quite well. Mm. Sales were all, and was really enjoying it. I was really, enjoy- I had a new bunch of friends. It was really cool, and then to be suddenly offered the job as a full-time skydiver, I thought, oh, I don't know if I want to do this. I, I, I really enjoy my jumping. But do I want to do it full time? And I was thinking about it, and they said, "Well, when are you here until?" So I said Tuesday. They said, "Well, let's meet on Monday morning, and then we can decide." So I'm thinking about it, and I thought, do "You know what? I had a vision in my mind of being back in the northeast of England in the middle of the winter, in the snow, in the sleet, in the mm. shit, in the cold." And I thought, "Do I? I don't want to do that. There's a once in a lifetime opportunity here." Sure. And so we went and sat in the meeting, and I'd already decided I was going to take it, but. Um, so they talked about what they wanted, when they wanted me to start, and uh, we, we shook hands and uh, agreed on the deal. In fact, the deal was, we w- I walked to the door, and we would not discussed salary. I have no idea what I was going to get paid. <laughs> and I said, oh, oh um, I'm sorry, we forgot to talk about the uh, the money. What are you going to pay me? And one of the owners, Ivan, looked at me with a wink. He said, ah, not a lot. And I went, yeah, okay. And I suddenly <laughs> thought, it doesn't matter, actually, does it? <laughs> it's going to be, I'm going to be living in Spain. I'll be jumping out of planes. I'm sure it will be enough to cover my rent and food. What more do I need to yeah, know? Yeah. And what an epiphany that was. That was a, a kind of realization. I'd been chasing the money a little bit before that. And I suddenly realized, this is what life is. This is what I'm going to be sure, doing. Yeah. Sure. Well, I would have been terrified. I would have had a flash of uh, me sitting in a blue suit at a bar in the same place yeah, for you, 20 fucking years. That would be you. Yeah. Blessing. You know, it's uh, it was the same thing with me, although I never really- I don't You were know. a stripper, were you? Yeah, I was a stripper. Yeah. I don't think I really ever had a, a line on a normal job. Yeah. I, uh, um, I, I faked it a couple of times, but no. Nah. Yeah. I, I tried the real world as an adult for a little while. I tried flying for an airline for a bit. Um, but, uh, after two and a half, three years of that, I went, well, this is for the fucking birds. <laughs> I just, I don't understand. I, I don't, I, I, and I'm sure you're the same way. I do not understand spending uh, 75% of your time miserable yeah. so that 25% of the time you might be happy. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense to me. And there's a lot of people lost in that. And, I, and, I, and, you know, I don't think it's out of laziness. I don't think it's out of lack of imagination. It's just so difficult when you're. When you're in that kind of situation to break out of it, I think we've been very, I've been very fortunate to find myself, first of all, as a skydiver, mm. uh, to break out of my hometown and to discover new places and to be offered, you know, that chance of going working um, there in the drop zone for, sure. you know, 10 years I was there as well. And then eventually to give that up and to retire from that and to go freelance, another big 
milestone of a move, another big scary move. Sure, but I'll tell you what, the fact that you did it the first time was probably what allowed it to happen the second time. It makes it easy. Uh, yeah, you know, you're like, well, all right, fuck it. I made this enormous leap one time around and survived it, and uh, it wasn't so bad. And, and even if it got bad, I handled it. And yeah. so it makes that next step a little bit easier and so on and so on. Well, the, the first one, um, I suppose, was quitting the pub because that was quite a well... Um, it, it was a good business. It was a bringing in. It was bringing in good business, and so to decide to leave that and go and move up to the northeast of England uh, to get married and to start a new life, that was quite a big decision. You know? Sure. To, to leave behind a, a big, a big income. So I did that, and then um, to go and live in Spain and be a full time skydiver. That was a big move as well. Mm. Uh, but it was there. That's where the presenting started, really, because mm. I, I was already. DJing. I was already using a microphone. I used to do my Every own. Fucking Englishman is a DJ. They've all been a DJ, haven't they? Yeah? Every single one of them. What? The, what is it? What? Uh, it's just a great way of picking up chicks. It's got to be. I yeah. mean, don't get me wrong. I I used to promote raves way back in the day in San Francisco. So when the rave scene hit the United States, it was well after it had you know gotten started in the UK. Yeah, uh, you guys were already well into all that stuff. But it, you know, you just. Every Englishman I've ever met has been a fucking DJ at some yeah, but point. When I was doing it, this was before the rave scene. This was oh. when we used to play records right. and use a microphone <laughs> and say, "Let's German Jackson Five coming up next tonight." You know that was that kind of thing. Awesome. And I honed my uh, my 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 uh, my technique of presenting on that. We used to do a Sunday night disco in the pub, mm. and it was only a little room. And I had down the left hand side, I had what my call the pub was called the Fleece. Mm. I had my flea sets, so they, <laughs> they knew the set list, and they would play like tracks from Greece and stuff, and they'd all do the actions and all the songs awesome. and things. We, we had little gimmicks. I used to do. I used to do a little bit of um, slapstick stuff with. I had props and all sorts of things going on. It was mm. like a little stage show, really. Sure, yeah. So that, that was brilliant. I actually got to do something uh, similar for quite a few years, um, actually through a, a motorcycle accident. I was working, as you said, I was working as a stripper uh, in Las Vegas, and it busted up my arm. And uh, uh, when I had done it earlier in my life in California, I had been on the mic a little bit yeah. just to announce the shows that we were doing. Right. And it was literally just because nobody else would do it. Yeah. Um, and uh, so when I busted myself up in a motorcycle accident in Las Vegas, my money went away real quick right? because, you know, you can't stand up and take your pants off with a big hunk of metal sticking out of yeah. your arm. Uh, and uh, it happened that the DJ and MC, the master of ceremonies at the time, was leaving at the exact same time that I screwed myself up. And I ended up spending, geez, three and a half, almost four years as the MC of the show. Wow. And it's the same thing. You're announcing all the acts and yeah. you're, you know, playing the jokes. And, of course, they get a bit canned after a while, but it's, <laughs> it's fun. It's, yeah. It was really, really entertaining to do. So I can under, I can definitely see the attraction. But how did that start for you? I mean, you, you did the DJ stuff, but you – you're very well known now as like the announcer for air sports. Loads of lucky breaks. Um, that job in Spain, working on the drop zone, <clears throat> eventually I got my AFF and tandem rating. And I was, so I was doing that as well as load organizing. And then they were having the King of Swoop competition on the beach. Mm. They'd done it a few years previously. And so the, all the top canopy pilots really turned up um, there for that event. And they wanted an announcer, and I was a DJ there, and I was DJing up at the drop zone on a weekend as well with a microphone and all the rest of it. So they asked me if I would go and uh, stand up on the beach with a mic and a sound system and call in, call in the pilots as they landed. And uh, I said, yeah, well, what's the deal? How does it work? He said, yeah, well, we'll be there all week, 
and uh, it'll take you off the tandem rotation, uh, rotation and you'll get an extra 100 euros per day. I said, yeah, go on, yeah. let's do it. So uh, I did that. And I think they had that competition two years in a row. Um, that would have been 2005 and six, And then it kind of went quiet with the presenting then. The next break was when the Dubai scene, uh, scene started. There was 2009. I remember it was a Sunday night. I just got back to the apartment. I had my old Nokia phone, mm. old Nokia with a snake thing. And I got an SMS from uh, Renier Boss. And he was the guy who'd organized the King of Swoop and he had the drop zone shop. And he sent me this SMS and it said, see you in Dubai, you're paying the beers. So I thought, well, what does that mean? Why? Because nobody, Dubai wasn't part of the conversation with anybody really. Sure. It didn't, didn't mean anything to do with parachuting or skydiving. So I thought, what does that mean? So I, I rang him and uh, he, he answered the phone. He always calls me Rigi. He's like, Rigi, Rigi. I said, what's this text? What? He said, no, 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 no. Oh, no, no. I shouldn't have said that. I said, whoa, what, what's wrong? What's wrong? He said, no, I've been drinking. It's a secret, top secret. I shouldn't have sent it. I said, what's a top secret? He said, well, you're going to get a call tomorrow morning from um, um, the Emirati Aviation Association. I said, the, the what? Well, let me get a pen. So I'm trying to write this thing down, these words that I've never heard. Emirati Aviation Association. I said, what is it? He said, yeah, they're going to call you. And they're, they're putting on this big event at the end of the year, this International Parachuting Championships. Mm. And they want um, a speaker. So I've put your name forward. So I wrote everything. I thought, okay, whatever. It sounds, I don't know. It's some kind of, either a wind up or it's a kind of... Uh, a, th- a thought somebody's had it's sure. not going to come to anything but sure enough the next day I got this call he, he said is this Regan Tetlow we want you to come to Dubai in November and I was shocked with it all and I was going yep 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 and I finished the call and I'd not asked about any details about how we progress this or who's <laughs> my contact or if I'm going to get paid or I see a theme with you <laughs> like yeah just kind of throwing the phone down thinking, yeah <laughs> yeah I'll do it I'll do it I'll do it <laughs> Do it, yeah. Don't want, to, don't want to seem too keen. Yeah, 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 yeah. Middle, 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 middle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I did, and so they, they took me out there, and uh, in that November, and that was the first Dubai International Parachuting Championships, and I um, did my one and only jump over the palm there before Scar of Dubai existed. Wow. Yeah. At the end of the gig, um, there was a place on the helicopter, so I grabbed the broadcast mic, made sure the broadcast team were watching, took the mic into the helicopter, and lobbed out, and I got. This pick of me on my bike with the mic awesome turned it on on the canopy and all my other jumps since then uh, that I've been to Dubai have been um, at the desert campus I've only jumped one jump over the palm oh wow before Skydive Dubai existed so that's kind of really where the the um, announcing and everything kicked off yeah we, we did that 2010 went back 2011 2012 for the Mondial also in 2012 uh, actually sorry 2013 I went to um, I got invited by the FAI to go to Colombia mm. for the um, the uh, canopy piloting uh, championships, uh, that was an event and a half. The Colombians, they like to have a good time. Mm. They could, they just brought buses and buses and buses of people into this. We we're out in this military airbase in the middle of nowhere, and they put thousands of seats down the side of the swoop pond and filled it every day with people. I don't know where they got them from, <laughs> and man, they were excitable. I was chatting to uh, some of the locals about, well, you know, how I should get get them going. They said, well, just say, uh, Fisca Cali, Viva Cali. And that would get them all going because the area was called Cali. Ah. And apparently there's three districts. There's Cali, Chippy Chappy, Jumbo. Wait, Cali, Colombia. Yeah. Cali, Colombia is, you mean, the cocaine capital of the world. Well, we're going to talk about that, are we? Well, yeah. Ooh, <laughs> shit. So, so they would just say, I would just say, 
Golly, chippy, chappy, jumbo. And they would just be up on their feet. Ba, 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 cha, 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 cha. 3,000 people. It was the best gig ever. I bet. Yeah. Good morning. My name's Rick Zello. And they were getting autographs from all the people. I think they were all on. Is that what they were doing? They were playing them all up with coke. No, absolutely not. No one there has ever done cocaine. Ever. No way. Kelly Columbia. The Kelly. Fucking hell, you did a swoop comp for the Kelly cartel. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, um, the 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 party, the closing party, was quite uh, vigorous. I bet it was. But it lasted a couple of weeks. Yeah, <laughs> probably still going on now. Well, one of the biggest events that I watched you do um, uh, was, I think I watched it on Facebook, and it was uh, the um, Copenhagen Swoop Comp, Swoop Freestyle. It used to be called Swoop Challenge. We did the first one in 2014. So that yeah, so off the back of uh, the World uh, Games in Cali, Colombia, then. Um, I got a contact through Patrick Kay, actually, a swooper from Dubai. I know him well. He was involved um, with the team from Copenhagen, and they put me in touch with them, and they asked me to go along, along with uh, Peter Irish Sullivan, great guy, friend of mine, Peter Irish, uh, Irish guy working down in Australia. And um, we did that. We did the, the the big one there in the centre of Copenhagen and pebbling us so. And we did that for 14, 15, 16, 17 18, five, last five years we've been there. Wow. And in fact, last year we had two locations. We had that one there in um, Copenhagen and San Diego as well. But what a gig, what a gig that is to walk out to what is in all intents and purposes, the size of a football crowd, 80,000 people around this lake because of the location, uh, this pebbling or so lake on a normal weekend anyway, with no special event, they'll get 20 or 30,000 people. Wow. Just all sat around, little mini barbecues, smoking joints. And so you put a swoop comp in the middle of that anyway, <laughs> and just suddenly you walk out, good morning, Copenhagen, and the crowd is just... It's got to be insane. Intense, yeah. Did you ever think anything in skydiving would have that kind of a draw? No. I mean, it's, I mean now the, the, the wind tunnels obviously have made skydiving a little bit more in-your-face personal. Yeah. Um, and I, I think we talked about it uh, before outside this show, the... The uh, uh, skydiving has never been a, a huge spectator sport just because it's not really accessible. Right. Uh, you know, if you, if you have to watch something on a TV, it's very difficult to call it a spectator sport. Uh, but as soon as you start to throw swoop or um, tunnel flying into it, it's now in your face. Yeah. Uh, so it becomes this huge thing. But I still never would have thought, I mean, 80, 100,000 people? Holy uh, shit. I mean, what's really held it back in the past with um, TV is obviously the weather, you know, because mm. of the time slots with scheduling. I mean, it almost broke through in the late 90s with the uh, Extreme Games. Remember that? With the Sky yeah, Surf scene. Sky Surfing. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, that really was when it almost kind of hit the big time. It was there, you know, on the TV uh, with all... Were you on a, were you on a filming? A yeah, I was camera for a Sky Surf team. team and yeah. uh, I was... That was basically when I was coming up was when the X Games were still going on. And yeah. I was watching, you know, Vic Papadato and Troy Hartman and... Yeah. and uh, um, I was watching all of these people and just, you know, absolutely amazed at what was going on. But because I was in skydiving, I at least understood it a little bit. But even then, some part of me understood that if you don't know anything about skydiving and specifically sky surfing, this would be a very alien thing yeah. to you. And it really was. Um, and I think sky surfing kind of went by the wayside for a couple of reasons. One the general public couldn't understand it. Again, if you got to go watch something on a TV, who's going to go to a location to watch a big show? Yeah. You know, so that's going to kind of kill it. But uh, the competitors just got too good. 
Uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, I believe it was Sean McCormick came up with a move that pretty much brought sky surfing to a standstill. And it was a move called the Invisible Man. And he would do this stand-up spin that was literally so fast that he'd become a blur yeah. on the, on the yeah. video. Um, the downside to being able to do a move like that is, of course, to get into the spin, you have to bring in everything nice and tight. To get out of the spin, you've got to extend everything. But he was spinning so fast that when he would let his arms go out, he'd blow out every blood vessel in his arms oh, wow. and almost have a difficult time pulling. Yeah. Uh, so the solution to that was to duct tape his arms like as a pressure suit, just wow. like a, just like a, a fighter jet pilot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you hit that level, where in order to survive around, you've got to duct tape your arms. I think people just kind of tapped out and went, "Yeah, I think we're good." I think accessibility as well. It was about the time that skateboarding, like Tony Hawk's, was really kicking off. Yeah. If you want to, you know, a young kid wants to emulate that, they can go to Walmart and buy a board. If you want to be a sky surfer, there's a whole different process to oh, go yeah. through to get there. So. Yeah, yeah. You can go out and buy a $150 skateboard or you can uh, look at $150, you know, a day as a minimum. Yeah. And that's not without gear. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think we were quite fortunate as well with the Swoop Freestyle and the tunnel events too, that they, they all kind of came together at roughly the same time as... Um, the whole live stream uh, culture we've got now with Facebook Live and with yep. uh, YouTube Live as well. So now we can broadcast anywhere in the world to anybody um, at a fraction of the cost of bringing on a TV production. So that's what's really made a big difference Absolutely. as well. Well, but a lot of it's still got to go into. I mean, the, the production value of the, the Copenhagen gig was yeah, spectacular. I mean, uh, the figures, I mean, I, I was I was privy to the... Uh, the budget and it's like a lot of money to try and you know develop and bring on that sponsorship good luck to the guys you know and, and hats off to them to george uh, and michael who have been instigators in the uh, swoop freestyle over the last five years how they've brought that level of investment you know and to keep the team going like they have it's been absolutely I bet. a miracle story I bet. They, they were just apparently they were walking um they were both naval officers and they were walking down the lake one evening um and just, I think they just started jumping. They had maybe 40 or 50 jumps. Correct <laughs> me if I'm wrong. And they're just walking down the lake thinking, this would be a good place for a parachute competition. Isn't it funny that it's usually the greatest ideas come from people who just don't know they shouldn't be able to do it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And if you're in Copenhagen and you've That's got right. copious amounts of, uh, uh, shall we say, altered entertainment. Stingling. Is that it? Yeah. 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 No, you can come up with some good ideas. I think, I mean, all the best ideas have, have had to have come from people who just didn't know they couldn't do that. Yeah. No, you can't do that because people take no for an answer way too easily. I think a lot of times we have ideas about something and then we it just goes and it's the people that actually take it to the next level and keep pushing. That's when oh, yeah. dreams come true. Especially in the sport. I mean, guys like uh, Patrick Digardon oh, with yeah. sky surfing and yeah. wingsuiting. I mean, who would have thought uh, wingsuiting has gone everywhere that it's gone. Yeah. Again, uh, not so much a spectator sport, but certainly spectacular. Uh, but I think the future for air sports has got to be the wind tunnel, no? The one thing which really catches the public imagination and things that people, when, it, when we're doing a live stream and you get the live comments coming through, the things that non-skydivers, uh, non-tunnel flyers connect to is always the freestyle to music. Got to be. That's where they can get a hook onto it. It's like... Um, dancing on ice it's like uh, it's a performance they can see they can understand they can get a feel of what's happening sure sure well and and I think you can you, you don't need to know how difficult something is to know how cool it looks yeah for sure yeah and as soon as they started putting uh, the tunnel flying to music are you kidding and then uh, who do, you know, do you know the first person who did that no my girlfriend really Lise Hernandez Gila 
Really? Yeah, in 2014 in Canada uh, at the uh, at the the first the first championships, she had an idea of um, doing her freestyle with music. So she found um, somebody with a sound system and got a radio in her ear and broadcast it to herself and put the speakers on the outside of the tunnel. And she was the very first person. That's, that, that's just, her legacy. That's fucking epic. Well done, Lise. Love yeah, you. Yeah, that's absolutely epic. Well, yeah. and I've never seen one in person, so I didn't actually know. I, I've seen the the um, the videos of it, and you know, you hear the music from outside, yeah. but I didn't realize the competitors had the music as well. Yeah, then the the win games really. Um, with the next ones to step it up and to really bring it as a, an event with the freestyles of music. And it was absolutely mind-blowing. The first Wind Games I did in 2014. In fact, this shows you the progression of tunnel um, tunnel production, if you like, from a production side, from mm. a broadcast side. The first one that I got involved with was 2014 Wind Games. And I think the one before that was the Knights of Prague, was the very first one with a live stream. Again, correct me if I'm wrong. But what we did, I had a mixing desk, and uh, some MP3s and a microphone, and there was a guy with a Sony camera, and he was filming me while I introduced the next flyer, and then he would turn and film the tunnel, <laughs> and he would film the uh, the flight, and then turn back to me, and I was uh, playing the music and introducing the guys as they were coming in. All right. And that was only, what, five years ago. Look at the progression now. We've got full broadcast quality... Um, Productions taking place. It's Out, crazy. Full live it? outside broadcast. Yeah, it's incredible. No, it's absolutely mind blowing. Well, and as quickly as that stuff is progressing, the talent in the tunnel is progressing just as fast. It's, yeah. It is astounding to watch. In fact, I think it was just two days ago. Uh, the Wittenberg kids took uh, 2A USA National Championships. And the, the World Championship they, they, oh. over in uh, Lille with the, the World uh, Championships at Indoor Skydiving. In the, Holy yeah. shit. Did you see it? Did you see their performance? Uh, uh, yes. Oh, well, I saw what was, I guess, one of their uh, practices for the round that they put yeah, up. Yeah. Holy <clears throat> shit. Yeah. It's just unbelievable it's incredible well and i started out in the vegas tunnel which required a suit that's 10 times too big i've seen that yeah yeah the massive balloon suits with the vents in it and uh, maximum 120 miles an hour of wind and big blue padded walls that you had to bounce off the walls and stuff and and uh, it, to see from that to this in such a short period of yeah, time yeah. it's astounding i remember mike wittenberg uh, producing that video nine when, oh can, my god that, that video? video yes yeah. i remember that video yeah. i that video made me love respect and hate a nine-year-old all at the same time because <laughs> <laughs> it was so well done the video was so well produced was. she was such a sweetheart in it but then you watch her flying and you're like fucking hell <laughs> yeah she is so good it's just not cool and she's done nothing but get better i, I mean, can't do the shit she did in that video when she was not <laughs> if you look now i think it's safe to say if you don't start flying when you're five years old, you can forget it. It's like golf. It's like tennis. You know, if you don't start at that age, you're never going to be the champion. Pretty much. Amy Watson, now Australia, now the new uh, freestyle uh, junior champion. She won that then. Uh, Raf, Raf from Germany took the uh, open. I mean, it's Raf. just, oh man, and he's a character and a half. Oh, he cracks me the fuck up. We've done a couple of jumps oh. together and and uh, uh, trying to do tracking jumps and stuff. And the way he tries to describe how to do this or how to do that just makes me laugh every time because he's such a cheerful, happy guy. But the way he, he describes things and the way he tells you to do something is just. <laughs> 
<laughs> it makes you laugh. Every that time. AAD fire he had in Dubai in the desert campus, and yep. how he landed, just his reaction to that. Yep. How he landed on top of the car park canopy or something, didn't he? Yes, yes, he did. Yes, he did, man. That was, uh, I'll tell you what, yeah, this sport does definitely draw some fucking yep. characters. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. I must say to anybody uh, listening, that wasn't from a, a low opening. That was just a high-speed turn with a his uh, AD was set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, he's about as switched on as you can get. Yeah. This is not somebody that's going to have an AAD fire because nope. he was being stupid. No, no, no. Definitely not. So now you've done a ridiculous amount through your career in skydiving, yeah. especially in the way you started and starting on round parachutes and fighting fear to get through all the skydiving yeah. to, to becoming a working skydiver. You're the ambassador for Imperia Brava for 10 years. Yeah. You start uh, doing all the announcing and becoming basically the voice of air sports uh, in a lot of ways. But now you're a fucking movie star. Well, yeah, how did that happen? Again, another fraud situation. The fuck, man? <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Uh, Come on. Oh, mate. Uh, we've got a premiere, actually, of my second movie. Um, second movie. Say that again. Well, How's actually, that feel? How's the, that feel? Two days ago, I was filming my third. And this coming Saturday, I'm doing... I've got my scripts now for my fourth oh, movie. Fuck off. Really? Movie. Yeah. So uh, we've got the, um, the premiere of the second one called Louder, which is premiering in six days' time. Uh, the Roxy Theatre, and uh, I think there's 20 tickets left for the premiere, for the red carpet premiere, if anybody wants to go along to that. But how did it start? I'll tell you where it started. I was, I, I, um, I met a girl, um, well, actually, I met her in Ampura Brava, um, and she was a skydiver, and she saw that I was a presenter and doing all the things, and she was in events, and she said, look, there's lots of work for um, somebody with a microphone. And I was thinking about my time as a full-time skydiver, at that job was coming to an end because basically I was just doing too much outside work. Mm. I was getting all these different gigs. I was getting invited to go organize at different boogies as well. You know, Rich Grimm? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've done a lot yeah. of boogies with Rich Grimm in February, Belize and Nicaragua and Costa Rica. In fact, next year, next year we're going to the Maldives. Oh. In February. It's going to be incredible. So, and I was doing all these outside gigs and there was one particular moment where uh, my boss, uh, Ralph Curatel at Imperial Bravo, we were having a chat. He was very calm. And he says, hey, Regan. Swiss guy is very calm. He says, hey, Regan, man. So uh, how are you doing? It's good to see you. I said, yeah, I'm doing fine. He said, have you been away? I said, yeah, I was doing that, you know, that thing. I was doing that thing. You know, I was giving it big shouts out for Imperial right. Bravo. He said, okay, okay, okay. He said, how many, um, he said, how many days annual leave do you get? I said, uh, I think it's, I think it's 34, 34 days. But, you know, he said, yeah, it's good. 34 days. That's exactly what you get. He said, do you know how many days you've been away this year? I said, oh, 40, maybe 40, 44, maybe 40. He said, 72, 72 days you've not been here. I said, oh yeah, but we had the world games and we had that. And then there was that big event. And then the Mondial, we had that in Dubai. And then that other thing I said, but I'm always saying, I'm always wearing the gear. You know, I've got my Skyler and Pure Brava t-shirt with the Regan Tetlow on it, you know, and I'm always, he says, yeah, but come on, mate. He says, go on. You can't be, you know, you can't be going around the world doing all this and getting a full-time salary if it was as well, can you really? All right. I said, well, probably not. He said, so have a think, you know, you whatever you want to do, you know, but if you're going to stay with us, you need to come back a little bit. And if you want to do your own thing, by all means, best of luck. And so this coincided with uh, meeting a friend from Dubai and I said, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm, there's life again, life is too short not to. Yeah, yeah. Another occasion for breaking, you know, the mold, which was a big move because I was, Getting towards my late forties, I had a job for life. Really, I could have moved on to ground control and just stayed there, cushion, sure. salary, pension, living by the sea. Now let's give that up. Let's cut away <laughs> and go and try and be a freelance presenter yeah, and a freelance load organizer. So I did that. So I moved to Dubai, 
at the end of 2014. And a bit of advice somebody gave me was, whatever you do when you get to Dubai, be flexible, man. If somebody says, can you do this? Can you do that? Just do it, you know, because you, you got to get the money in. Don't mm. don't say, oh, no, I'm a presenter of this or oh, I only do that. Mm. Do whatever you can. The answer is so, yes. The answer is always yes. And then again, another text message, one, one Wednesday night, getting towards midnight, I got a WhatsApp from this agent that I'd done a couple of jobs for, a couple of presenting jobs. And she said, can you act? And I was like, nah. I thought, oh, um, um, uh, yes. Just typed yes. Shit, what, what am I doing? She was right, I'm sending you the scripts now. Like, oh my God, what, what, what is it? What is it? She said, it's a stage show we're doing on Friday. This is Wednesday night at midnight. <laughs> on Friday, Friday afternoon, we're in front of like 200 kids and it's a performance of um, Prince Charming. It's like a two hour, it's like a, oh my God, so the script came and there was lots of it, lots of pages, mm. with lots of dialogue. And I'm thinking, I'm, oh man, I'll, so I text her back and just say, look, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm wasting your time. I thought, no, I'll have a go. So I, I'm reading through it. So I love, I used to do a bit of acting as a kid, so I like the idea. So I'm reading, highlighting, highlighting these lines and trying to remember them. And I was up most of the night because we had to meet the next day at Thursday, Thursday at 7 p.m. We had to meet with the other actors, the other cast. I've got to meet them and do this thing. And so I'm up most of the night and I've got about three quarters of the script in my head. I can't get it all in. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I've got, I've got today and I'm trying to learn it. I didn't get it all down. So I thought, right, here's the plan. I'm going to have to, um, I'm going to turn up. I'm going to meet them all, but I'm going to have to come clean. I'm going to have to say to them as they arrive, I'm going to put my hands up and say, guys, look, I hope, you know, you know I'm not an actor, right? And I've got this script and I've got about 75% of the, you know, the way into it. And, uh, you know, if you want me to walk away now, I will. I'm really sorry for wasting your time. Um, I just don't, I thought I'd just try and, you know, blag my way through it, and uh, I apologise. So I got there first, and I'm I open the I open the door of this uh, this rehearsal room, and it's pitch black, and I put the lights on, and I get a chair and put it in the centre, and I'm trying for the last few minutes to look through the script. Oh, may I, you know, the daughter, the king, the queen, blah blah blah. And I heard cars pull up outside. I thought, here we go, this is it. This is going to be a really embarrassing moment in my life. They're going to laugh, you know. And the door opened, and these three women walked in all laughing and joking with each other. And I stood up quick and ran over and I said, oh, hi, I'm Regan. I said, oh, you must be the guy doing Prince Charming. I said, yeah, yeah, I am. I said, look, I said, something I need to tell you. I said, it's not a mix-up, it's my fault, but I've got about 75% of the script down. And I said, what? what? What do you mean? I said, yeah. I said, no, you, you've you've looked in the script. You've opened the script. I said, yeah. They said, bloody hell, I've not even looked at mine yet. I felt I haven't got it. Where, can I look at yours? I was like, what? They said, yeah. I said, oh, um, right, you've not looked at the script. Said, no, they said, we're not even bleeding actors. I work in a shop and she <laughs> she works. She doesn't do anything. She Her husband works. And so we've been roped in to do this. I said, oh, right. I said, well, uh, I'm not an actor either. I'm sure we'll have a good time. And so we started running it. And uh, they were like, oh, my God, you're good at this. you know." <laughs> so we did it. We did the show. We went on stage. I think we did four shows. I've got the pictures as well in this blonde wig uh, doing this show. And uh, I think we had a few drinks before the last show. Went a little bit off script. It went a bit wild. But that whet my appetite for it. And then the same woman, uh, after the strength of that, she said, look, um, can you, uh, have you ever done skin work before? Skin? Wait, skin work? So I said, again, I went, "Uh, yeah. Wonder what the hell that means. No idea what that means. So I, thought, I know what I, I know what I think that means. I'm from fucking California. Yeah, have a guess. <laughs> I would guess what skin work is. Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't have a clue, man. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a retired stripper from Vegas. What yeah. do you think? I think skin work. So means? what it turns out it is, 
Have you heard of Barney the dinosaur? Yeah. The big purple guy. Yeah. So it's but Skinwork is getting in these things and being the animation inside these characters. Oh no. So, <laughs> so it's money, you know? It's money. So she says they've got they've got the annual conference of Mattel in Dubai. Uh, next week and they need somebody to be there for half an hour to shake hands and do the things and I said yeah I'll do it of course I will (laughs) see see, here's the the fucked up mentality that I've got because you said skin work and then you put me on the wrong path (laughs) and then you said Barney but have you ever heard of um, what is it Uh, they call them furries have you heard of this no people that like to dress up as stuffed animals oh yeah and have sex You've got a tiger in your... I do. I do have Tigger is hanging right here. Well, that's, you know, New Year's. All right. What are you going to do, right? What are you going to do? Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, so she was offering me a few hundred quid to do this. So uh, she said, can you come down just for a little uh, test? I thought, well, what do I need to test? You know. Anyway, but I turn up and I'm quite, I'm a little bit claustrophobic. I'm not very good with closed in spaces. Right. This room we're in now is quite small, but it's okay. But this Barney thing, it's like a small space capsule. Yeah, It's yeah. all aluminium and... It's got fans inside, and it's pitch black, and you've got to crawl in it. There's fans inside Barney? And I'm looking at it thinking, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can get inside this thing. And so there's like these three executives from Mattel there, and she's there as well. And so I start crawling inside, and it's hot, and these fans are like by the side of your head. And it's all, there's a mesh that you can see through, and then you've got to stand up, and then they put the feet on and the hands on. And then so you're in this thing. It's like a little mini submarine. So I did it. I did the gig at this hotel, the Pyramid Hotel, I think it was. And then she said, we've got an event um, next week in Egypt. Do you want to go to Egypt? There's two weeks, two weeks doing this with three 20-minute shows at this holiday (laughs) resort at nighttime. And uh, all the day is yours. You can do what you want. But you've got to be on stage at 9 p.m. for 15 days. It was good money. I said, yeah, I'll do it. So the next thing I know, this is the best bit, I get to Dubai Airport. And this random guy turns up with a van and drags out this big blue bag, like a kit bag, but about the size of the room we're in now. So what's that? About seven feet long, something like that? Yeah, something like that. So it's obviously got, you think it's got barn in it. That's the kind of size of bag it should be, of course. And so he hands it over to me and I start dragging it through the airport. No idea who this guy is. No idea what's in this bag. Get to the check-in to fly to Egypt and the guy says, what's in the bag? I say, I say, in my head I thought, I haven't got a fucking clue. It could have anything in it. What am I thinking? I've not even checked this. Yeah, that's kind of like the first rule of flying. Yeah. You don't take a bag from somebody. Did anybody give you a bag? Do you know the contents? I haven't got a clue, mate. So I said, um, it's barn. It's got a dinosaur in it. He said, a dinosaur? I said, yeah, the, 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 the children's character. Bar-. He said, okay, okay. And the police came and they picked it up and put it on a special trolley and took me to a different part of the airport with this big scanning machine. I bet they did. And put it in. And I'm thinking... This is what you see when you see these people banged up abroad. Yeah. And you think, how did they find themselves in this situation? This is me right now. It could be stuffed full of anything. And they put it through this machine and it comes out to the side and they look at me and say, okay. Oh, man. What was I thinking? No, that was, yeah. Yeah, probably wasn't one of your sharpest moments. So I get to Egypt (laughs) and they take me to this hotel. I'm there for uh, 14, 15 days. And uh, so we're checking, and the, my, the person who's organising thing meets me, and uh, yeah, that that was it. But all the other, and on, we did the gig. But a little quick story. Have we got time for another quick story about yeah. this? So I'm doing this thing, and I'm by the pool, thinking like I'm an actor. I'm a bit of an actor because I'm doing Barney every night, and the hotel's full of cabin crew. 
all the flight attendants were in the um, same hotel. So all these girls are there in the same. Uh-huh. So we got chatting with them. They said, so what, what are you doing here? Then? Are you on your own? I said, yeah. What do you do? I said, I'm an actor. I said, you're an actor? Well, what are you acting in? Because uh, obviously they knew what was there. Sure. I said, uh, oh, well, I'm doing um, it's a stage show. I said, a stage show? Well, we've not seen any. What kind of a stage? I said, it's children's uh, entertainment. Do some children. She, she looked at each other and she looked at me and she went, are you fucking Barney? <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, but shh, don't tell anybody it's top secret, you know. <laughs> That's genius. That's genius. And then on the way out at the airport, we'll get back to the airport, and I'm leaving, and there's a massive queue to get in the airport, and this guy runs up to me, local guy. He says, sir, do you want VIP lane? I give you VIP lane, because I've got this trolley with the big bang on it. VIP lane, sir. Uh, I said, yeah, I'd love it. He said, $20, 20 Egyptian pounds. So I pulled out 20 Egyptian pounds and give it to him, and he said, okay, and he kind of ran away. And I never saw him again. <laughs> genius yeah genius so, so that was so that was my introduction to acting and then um and then a few more i signed up with a couple of agencies and i got a few television commercials coming through and then uh the first movie break was for a movie called the wedding party 2 and i auditioned for this um it was just many one of the many things i was clicking online to audition for i wasn't quite even sure what it was and i got there and it turned out to be a movie. I thought mm. it was a commercial. It was a movie. So he gave me a script to read. And it was, the direction was, uh, at the end of the scuffle, he pushes back his slick black hair and puts himself straight. And I'm thinking, I haven't got any hair. Yeah. And yeah, then, they call, a- then they call me at Regan Tetlow. So I had to go into this uh, audition quickly. So I think, what am I going to do? So I just pulled my shirt out and did a few buttons. And while I'm recovering from this scuffle thing, I just kind of did the buttons up and tucked it back in and did the line. And um, unbelievably, I got the gig. I got it. I got the role in my first ever movie, speaking part and everything. Wow. Incredible, eh? Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, from from smuggling Barney into Egypt. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, from being Prince Charming, that was the first one. Uh, Yeah, Prince Charming for kids to smuggling Barney into Egypt and then your first speaking part in a movie. That's right. Wow. All because somebody handed you a microphone in Empuria Brava and asked you to announce some Scott Evers. Well, even before that, because I was DJing in uh, the pub. That's, oh, wait, wait. Yeah, but every Englishman's a DJ. <laughs> we've established that. So We've established that. So if people say to me now, I'm, I was like dreading at the beginning of this, you were going to say, what do you do? Because I, I don't even know what to say anymore. Skydiving, voiceover work, acting, Lord organizing. MC, and I still feel like a barman. I'm just a barman from yeah, Stella Bridge. What a, what a badge of honor to be able to say, when the question is, what do you do, to be able to say, I'm not really sure. The funny thing was, I was on a shoot two days ago, and there's a friend of the, there called uh, Casey, and he's, he's quite a respected actor. He's got a lot of movies under his belt and loads of stuff. And he's obsessed with skydiving. He wants to start skydiving. Mm. You know? And he, he's... Um, we were, we were meeting some other people, and I say that I'm Regan, I'm the actor on this. And he's like, tell them you're a skydiver. Tell them he said, if I was a skydiver, I'd be telling everybody. I'd be telling yep, the taxi yep, driver. Yep, yep. I'd be telling the guy in the grocers. But you don't, do you? you don't. No, no, you really don't. Well, what's the old joke is uh, uh, if you want to know who the pilot in the room is, don't worry, he'll tell you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that kind of thing. But yeah. I, I never ran around telling people that I was a skydiver or anything like that. It just never really crossed your mind. Um, and uh, it's funny because I've had the opportunity in in my time in the sport to meet a number of actors and a number of very high end actors and right. even work with a few real of them. ones, real yeah. ones, yeah, just you know the the, the big names and and uh, uh, I've never been, I've always been really surprised at how in awe of what we do, right? Some of them are, yeah. 
Um, and then uh, I had the uh, really lucky break to work with and, and uh, work as a pilot for Tom Cruise for right. for uh, uh, one of the Mission Impossible movies. Yes. Uh, he had been doing a whole bunch of stuff with military aircraft. And, of course, uh, when you're flying military aircraft, they've got a very set way that they've got to do things. Yeah. And so he's expecting that kind of stuff. But I'm a jump pilot. So they get into my plane. And, of course, in the back of my mind, I'm like, all right, fucking Maverick's in the back of my plane. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, he hops in the plane, and I hammer the throttles, and on off a twin we go. Also, and a twin, yeah, 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 and twin otter, and up we go, and we get him to altitude and jump back down. And we do a couple of jumps, and, and there's a bit of a lull in the activity. And uh, uh, so Tom Cruise is sitting right there, and I'm not exactly shy. And so I walk up, and, and he'd already been introduced to me at one point. But I walk over, and I'm like, so how are the jumps going and everything like that? And he's oh, yeah, they're, they're going pretty good. But And then he stops, and he's all, man, you're really fast. He knew like, you're the pilot. Eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, what's that? He's all, you're really fast, man. We were just there and we were gone and up and down and blah, blah, blah. And so he says a couple of really cool things and then his attention goes Because he's a other... pilot as well, isn't he? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And he does all his own jumps and everything. And, and his attention got drawn in a different direction. And uh, uh, one of the, the co-captains that was there with me is like, dude, Maverick just told you you're a yeah. fast pilot. And I'm like, oh, check <laughs> that box. <laughs> Fucking hell, cha-ching. Nice. Uh, but it always struck me as really funny that um, that these hardcore actors that everybody looks up to thinks the shit that we do just on a weekend for fun Crazy, eh? is cool as hell. Yeah. So it's all in perspective. It is. You know? It's what yeah. you get used to, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And it, uh, uh, it also, the skydiving has taught me so many lessons in regard to that kind of stuff, too, that uh, at the end of the day, they're all just people. Yeah. You know, so who knows, dude? Next time you might be walking down the red carpet at the Oscars. Well, you never know, man. Well you, well, you don't. I mean, but to me, that doesn't mean anything anyway. And I, I don't even know. Um... Oh, I'm going to use the hell out of it if I have <laughs> fucking an Oscar winner sitting in my toilet. Believe me, everybody's going to know about it. But yeah, I understand what you mean. You know mean. what I mean? There's no, that, that's not a, you know, it's like jumping out of a plane, going skydiving, having, having a day jumping out of a plane is still, out of nearly 30 years, one of the best things I can do with my Isn't life. It? You know, it absolutely is. There's, it's hard to have a, day, a good day of jumping to uh, feel pissed off in the evening. You know, you know it's, uh, and I tried to explain it to a bunch of people that haven't jumped. Uh, it's, it's, uh, the really the only way I've ever had of living in the moment, which is, you know, people talk about that all and that, that, that phrase is thrown around all over the place, but they don't understand until they've been there. Yeah. Skydiving is very much a living in the moment kind of thing. And it just turns the volume down on all the bullshit. Yeah. So you're right, man. And for me, it's 24 years after 24 years, you go out and make a couple of good jumps. Yeah. Traffic doesn't bother you so much anymore. And it's, I think the good thing as well about skydiving, I'm sure about a lot of um, sports which get you out there in the environment, um, it doesn't matter how many you've done or how long you've been doing it. That same feeling comes, doesn't it? You know, when you first start jumping to when you've been doing it for as many, many years as you and I have, it's that sensation of, of having a day where you've really achieved, you've really been out there and done something you know, which fills you, fills your soul. Absolutely. Well, and it very, very much does. And I don't think I ever drop away, drive away from a drop zone when I've had a couple of jumps, not just, oh, yeah. you know, that weight's taken off a little bit and you've had a little bit of fun and you've aired it out. And for just a few minutes, whatever bullshit during the day wasn't bothering you anymore. And, yeah. and uh, it, it's been a huge, well, it's been the reason along with the community that's kept me in the sport forever, you know, and why I don't think I'll ever not be. A skydiver, for sure. It's just too fulfilling. Somebody asked me once um, in an interview situation about what was the best jump, which jump do I remember the most? And I, I really thought about it. Um, it was for a written 
it was for one of the mags. It was for James for his uh, website. Mm. And um, he was asking what, what was the best jump. And I was trying to think about all the different jumps and which one stood out. And, you know, and it, and it's hard. And I, I remember thinking, it, you know, it's not about the actual jumps themselves. I've done like the Blue Hole jump, which is absolutely sure. amazing. I've done that twice in Alaska as well. And all these other things. Well, the... It's not the jump itself. It's the people. It always comes back to the people. When you always. have the, your best memories of a best day jumping, or well, oh, that, that they were there, or we did that, and we, we had a great dinner afterwards, or something. Or absolutely, it's always been about the people. Oh yeah, no, no. Looking back, I mean, I, I, I can't tell you when I had a badass hop and pop. I mean, I have great hop and pops. I love doing hop and pops yeah. and go out and just fly in my parachute. But the jumps that stick out in my mind and the memories that stick out in my mind in skydiving are the people. Period. It's the experiences with somebody else. It's it's uh, the memories that you've built with somebody else, and it's that uh, band of brothers, you know, foxhole mentality as well. Yeah. We do some stupid shit. Oh, we do. I mean, I don't care what you say. Skydiving is safe in a very dangerous way, or it's very dangerous in a very safe way. However, you want to look at it. What we do is a bit on the risky side, and you have bonds because of it, uh, and it draws certain people into it that are just amazing i've hurt myself on uh at skydiving events by not skydiving by being the presenter there was once one of the uh oh this was one of the most embarrassing things that ever happened to me uh the, the production crew had all these segways you know the segways that you stand on and you oh yeah you lean dangerous yeah you lean to make them go and i was doing my stuff down by the swoop palm and the the, the kind of production headquarters was up where the uh, packing area used to be, the packing room, the packing hall. So if you know, it's a little bit, it's quite a bit of a walk from mm. up there at the offices down to the swoop pond. But they had these segways, and it was one of the big events. It might have been the World Games, actually. It might have been the World Air Games in 2015. So there was a lot of people there. It was late afternoon. There might have been a few thousand people. I had the microphone, and I was entertaining the crowd in between elements. So there was other stuff going on, like classic accuracy and all that kind of stuff. So I'm on the mic telling people, and I'll, I think I've got this thing going saying, ladies and gentlemen, I need to get back to the swoop pond for the next round of accuracy, which takes place in the next 15 minutes. I'll see you there. And I decided to carry on with the crowd because we had a good atmosphere going and saying, uh, hey, do you think I should take the segue there? And everybody's going, yeah. No, do you really think I should? Yeah. They were cheering and getting them all going, go, yeah, go, go, go. So I got in this segue and I've got the mic in one hand. I'm trying to control this thing. And no, I've rolled segways all over the place. They're easy. There's nothing to it. Right. You just lean forward and off it goes. And it's one of these off-road ones with the big tires. Sure. It's grass which goes down to the uh, swoop pond. I'm on the grass and I'm going forward. And everybody's going, yay, yay, faster, faster. And so if you lean forward, you go faster. And the crowd are going crazy. I'm into the mic. And I thought, right, I'm going to really lean into it. Go as fast as I can. And I was leant all the way forward and just slid off the front. And the thing <laughs> slid from underneath me, kicked me on the back of my legs and flipped up in the air. And I'm in and it was wet and I'm in the mud in a suit. In a suit with mud on my face. And all the crowd <laughs> just went quiet. It wasn't even a massive if they would have given a massive cheer, it would have been like sacrifice for the entertainment value. They right. just all went quiet. They're just there on my own. <laughs> In, in the mud. Oh, On man. a Segway. Off the Segway. Oh, well, you know what the worst story about a Segway is? Did you ever hear about the uh, the guy that designed Segways? No. He fucking died on one. You're joking. No. He rode the damn thing off of a cliff <sighs> into the ocean and drowned. Wow. I am not even kidding you. Straight over the cliff? Right off the cliff. He obviously didn't... What? How did that happen? I have no idea, but I know for a fact it's true. I've researched it. <laughs> he got on his Segway. He accidentally went off a cliff into the ocean and fucking drowned. No way. So you're lucky you just fell over in a suit. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, man. 
Well, so what comes next for The Voice? Well, I've got branching out into many other airports, of course. I'm um, doing a lot for the FAI. I've been doing the canopy piloting and the wind tunnel stuff. I broke into the um, sailplane activity, the uh, gliders. Mm. Uh, they have their Grand Prix. So I've done a couple of them, which is really that's pretty intense stuff because it's all um, like 3D on screen. Um, the biggest one I'm doing at the moment, well, actually there's two. So the the drone racing is really taking off, if you pardon mm. the pun. That, the, 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 <laughs> that's becoming quite a big thing. They're, they're getting a kind of um, an international Grand Prix of that going. But the, the other one that I'm doing is um, balloon racing, commentating on balloon racing. <laughs> <laughs> gas balloon racing alright uh, it's it, that's what I thought right when I got the call do, do you want to come and commentate on the, uh, the the balloon race I thought what's this like a children's event or something right. like, it's gas balloon race it's the oldest air sport in the world it's over 100 years old it's called the Gordon Bennett that's because the people Coop in the first race are still in the fucking air they're still going <laughs> they're still going so it's 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 helium it's helium and um the the, uh, the balloon. So there's two types of balloons. You've got your hot air balloons, right? Uh, which we all know. We've probably all jumped out of hot air balloons. But then you've got helium gas filled balloons. And the way the race works, they fill it up with this incredibly dangerous gas, and then they're weighed down with sandbags. They've got sandbags all around them, and then um, by releasing sand, off they go. And the the idea of the race, it's a long distance as far as it can go. Mm. And and with atmospheric pressure and all the rest of it, the gas does leak and evaporate eventually. And so it's a challenge between how much gas you've got in and how much sand you've got left to see how far they can go. And when you're watching them with the sand, it's not like chucking out bags at a time. It's like a little spoon. It's like a few grains for an extra bit of lift here because you might get one mile an hour wind from the west here and then another two feet up. There could be another wind going another direction. Wow. And, and they've got to go. And they, they wanted me there for a week. I thought, I'm going to commentate for a week on Oof. this. On the marks, get set, go. But the whole experience is incredible. It starts off with this uh, very prestigious parade of all the balloon pilots at sunset. And so they've got the gas in, and so they're very buoyant. And so me and you can lift up the basket and just walk it forward with the crew inside. Oh, wow. You put it on this podium with spotlights over it, with live TV, and you're commentating on this. And then the uh, national anthem of that country starts, and then the, 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 uh, the crew let go, and off they go. And they've got the GoPros and stuff, and they're chucking out confetti and shiny things, and the band's playing. It's really pretty emotional. It's like sure. Phileas Fogg. It's like around the world in 80 days. And so all these, uh, I think last year there was 30, uh, 30 teams off the go. And, you know, they, they've got, they have meteorology teams. They have like a, it's like um, NASA headquarters, all the screens and the, I bet. the meteorology. And so they're tracking them overnight. And so that we go back the next day and we look at how they're tracking and where they've got to and we speak to the meteorologist and find out what the plans are for today. Well, they could carry on that track. Like six of them have broke off going that way. Another five have gone this way to the west. There's winds coming from the west there with a system which could take them out towards... I mean, we took off from uh, Switzerland. They could go out towards the UK or up towards uh, Russia. There's this one... For the last two years, they've headed towards this corridor between... Um, Belarus and Kaliningrad. Mm. Belarus on the north, Kaliningrad on the south, and there's this 30-mile corridor to get through. And the airspace of these two, these Kaliningrad and uh, Belarus is closed. And so they, they've got to get the right winds, which are going to get them through this. So they've either got to land before they get there, right. which is the end of their race, or if they've got enough, they can get through and carry on for another day even and, and win. But um, 
this airspace infringing stuff is serious business. Oh, yeah. You know, they, I think maybe five years ago, uh, one of them got shot down. The Russians put a fucking missile into them. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't believe we're laughing. I, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to laugh. I don't. I no. don't. Because it's tragic. It's, it's, but... <laughs> what a way to go it's like I had a malfunction I had line twist I had to land my reserve wow yeah. that's extreme mate yeah. what happened to your friends they got shot down by a missile yeah they got blown up by a missile while floating a balloon over Russian airspace yeah fucking hell it's intense eh hi yeah, 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 yeah. dude that's yeah. that part of it's certainly fucking intense yeah I gotta admit the beginning of it sounds a little bit like the Macy's Day Parade to me it does it's, it's wild because you know, they're drinking champagne and stuff as they're going up, and it's um, the romanticism of it all is incredible. Sure. The, uh, the the basket they're in is probably a metre and a half by a metre and a half, and they've got to live in this thing for up to four days. And so they've got, they, they have a bucket in there for using the bathroom. Oh, yeah. That gets tipped out as ballast. They have a, um, in the basket, they have a door at the side, which they open and slide out a plank, which they can lie on to go to, go to sleep. So there's always one person. You know, you can, and they they up at like 18,000 feet sometimes. So the temperature and the oxygen they need, you know, they have to be, the night times can be pretty intense. And then they've got the canopies that can pull around them for the rain and the ice. Wow. It's extreme, extreme living for a few days. And all of this shit, you're into all of this stuff because you decided to help try and buy a CT machine for somebody that had leukemia. Yeah. Back when you were a kid. That's right. What a fucking trip, right? It's madness, isn't it? Isn't it great? It is. Now you say it like that, it does sound quite... Yeah, yeah. I just think it's one gig to the next gig, isn't it? It's one one thing to the next. It's it's when you look back and you try and see the entire chain of, of events that made it happen. I yeah. mean, I, I gave credit in, in one of the books that I wrote to the fact that I am only where I am today because once upon a time, I told a lie to a girl to try and get laid. <laughs> and lied and said I used to be a stripper and then, oops, I actually became one. Have you wrote four books? Uh, two books. And what are the are the um, documentaries? What what's the story? Uh, one of them is just previously published articles for Blue Skies Magazine. I've yeah. been writing for them for shit almost ten years now for Lauren Cola, uh, uh, and the other one is called The Accidental Stripper, which is exactly that. Yeah. It's the the misadventures of how I Forrest Gumped my way through. Fantastic. Yeah, through through multiple very strange careers to lead to one of the strangest lives I've ever known. <laughs> Maybe that can be my pension. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, hey, are you kidding me? What was the what was the Brit movie? Uh, um, the Full Monty. Yeah, there you go. Come on. Yeah, I'll, I know people. I'll get you set up. <laughs> That's right. So, how do people find you? How do they find out what you got coming up next? How are they going to find these movies that you're in? Um, how are they going to just go make a skydive with you? How do they find Riga Titlo? So, I'm, I'm quite uh, active on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I'm trying to get back into Twitter. Twitter's hard. I'm trying to do that again. Mm. So, it's I'm quite fortunate having an unusual name. There's not many Regan Tetlows. Yeah. So, it's at Regan Tetlow. Regan Tetlow is Facebook. Regan Tetlow is Instagram. Regan Tetlow is Twitter. I'm doing the Instagram stories. I'm keeping everybody up to date. Come and follow me and uh, awesome. join us for the ride. And we got to hit the premieres of all the damn movies. And when you're on the red carpet and you're doing the, uh, uh, the whole Oscar thing, and you're up there on the stage, give a, give a wink. I would like to say thank you to Dean Ricky. Yeah, just a little nod. Just a little wink or something like that. Yeah. For the Cheers. Year. Cheers. Regan, twice since I didn't fuck up the audio this time. We have recorded, have we? Ladies and, we've got everything. Oh. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining. Regan, thank you so much for once again coming and sitting in the toilet with me and shooting the shit. Thanks for having me. It's, it's been, been a whole pleasure. lot of fun. Oh, cheers. <laughs> Take care, man. Take care. 
Well, there you have it. Another episode of the Lunatic Fringe Podcast brought to you as always by... Well, wait. Not as always, actually. Brought to you now by Gyro. Formerly known as Enziero Sports, you'll head to gyro.com for their next level line of canopies. By Pussfoot, the extreme sports collective. Head over to pussfoot.com to check it out. By Summit Parachute Systems, check out summitparachutesystems.com to talk to Jarrett Martin and the gang about kick-ass pilot rigs, rigging courses, and more. By Flyaway Indoor Skydiving, go to flyawaytn.com and check out all the cutting-edge stuff to come. By Pure Spectrum CBD, head to purespectrumcbd.com to check out their wide range of CBD products. And as for us, head to the lunaticfringepodcast.com to listen to any of the hundreds of episodes currently available, hit the link for our YouTube channel, pick up your copy of the Lunatic Fringe book or The Accidental Stripper, and get a sneak peek at upcoming guests. Once again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.